Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with his former teammate from the Mariners who pitched in four different decades in the major leagues, Jamie Moyer. Easy hop for Valdez. He's got it. Across the diamond in time, Jamie Moyer at the age of 47 has thrown a two-hit shutout. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today, we welcome a man that won 269 games in the big leagues over 25 years. He's also maybe my oldest friend in the world, Jamie Moyer. I love it. Moy, Moyer. Thanks for coming yeah. on. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> before you, hey, before you're an old guy, Moye, and and old seems to be the theme. We talked yesterday a little bit, but uh, you were a kid that grew up in Pennsylvania, Philly fan. Tell me about your childhood, and was it always baseball? Did you play any other sports growing up? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town and uh played uh bitty basketball midget football uh, and as i got into high school i actually started playing some golf and uh, you'd never know it if you watched my game but uh, or played with me um but yeah I, I but baseball was always my sport it was always the thing i wanted to do and you know i remember many times uh, people saying hey you know talking to a little kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'd say, I want to be a major league baseball player. And, uh, you know, I, I worked hard at it, pushed hard at it. And, you know, that opportunity, uh, was put in front of me as, uh, after my junior year of college at St. Joe's university. And, um, you know, I was drafted in the sixth round by the Chicago Cubs and, uh, you know, my dream began. Yeah. And, and, as you mentioned, you, you went to St. Joe's, um, in 1984, you got drafted by the Cubs. You get to the big leagues pretty quick. You get to the big leagues in 86 and you had kind of a unusual, well, not unusual, but pretty unique first start in the big leagues. You're facing Steve Carlton lefty, who, if you grow up in Pennsylvania, it's, it's tough not to know who you're facing that day. You end up getting the win, I think. Tell me about that day. That's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty cool debut. Yeah, growing up being a Phillies fan, obviously watching the Phillies, watching having the opportunity to watch Steve Carlton pitch, myself being a left-handed pitcher. You know, you know he was, honestly, he was my idol. And, uh, you know, going from that childhood dream of being in the big leagues. And then, you know, my first major league start being against Steve Carlton was, uh, you know, that was a pretty magical day. Um, I was supposed to start the day before, and then they pushed me back. And uh, I didn't know who was starting the next day. And I looked up and, oh my gosh, it was Steve Carlton. So obviously I didn't sleep one wink. Uh, I didn't get one wink of sleep, the, you know, the night before. Uh, going against my idol, and as you alluded to, you know we were fortunate enough to to eke out that game and and win that game. And yeah, my first major league win was against Steve Carlton. And Jamie, even though you know we've been we've been friends for a long time, I had to. You played so long, and, and we met starting in two thousand one. So I know that Jamie Moyer from two thousand one on. 
But when I look at your career, you kind of it's it's Jamie Moyer had two careers. The first half, um, which was you. well, it, it's not <laughs> necessarily you say, stunk, when we but, were teammates. You'd say Moyer, you stunk, and, and yeah, I but, did. but you, you didn't know, stink. I, I, yeah, I mean, it was. Craft. Yeah, but you, but you, the first half, it's it's a lot of guys have had that journey where it's your your right, journeyman right. and you're going up and down and up and down, and then the Jamie Moyer I know from 2001 on is a seasoned veteran and actually a guy. And I hate to give you any credit why why we're talking. You know, it's kind of <laughs> well. Embarrassing, why would you? But, that's, that's, that's but I'll tell you, you the Jamie you? Moyer I knew is a guy. You know, because I I played with a lot of great pitchers. But the Jamie Moyer I knew, that's a, that's a guy that I want on the mound in a big game, in a big situation. Because we've had a lot of long talks about it, but if, if Jamie Moyer takes the mound in a big situation and he gets beat, it's not because he was scared to do it. And uh, just talk about the tale of, of, of two careers, kind of, spanning 25 yeah, years. Yeah, well, you know, I, look, I, I broke into the game with the likes of uh, Rick Sutcliffe as a mentor, Scott Sanderson as a mentor, Steve Trout as a mentor. You know, those were starting pitchers that I was pitching with. Um, you know, but Rick Sutcliffe really, you know, took me under his wing. Scott Sanderson took me under his wing. And, you know, that's kind of how I cut my teeth with, you know, fellow starting pitchers. But then you had the likes of Gary Matthews in left field, Bob Dernier in center field. Keith Moreland in right field, um, Leon Durham at first, Ryan Sandberg at second, Sean Dunson at short, and Ron Say, Vance Law, Davey Lopes at third base, Jody Davis behind the plate, Jim Sunberg behind the plate. So I broke in with some guys that, you know, some were some of those guys are Hall of Famers, but some of those guys are just gamers. Right. And when I think of a gamer, I think, you know, I didn't know what major league baseball was like until I got to the big leagues and play with a guy like Gary Matthews who would run through a wall for, for a teammate or a Keith Moreland who would run through a wall for a teammate. Um, a Davy Lopes that just had nothing but grit. Ron say had nothing but grit. And these guys, you know, some of these guys were playing at the ends of their career, but they were the seasoned veterans that I was able to watch on a daily basis. And I learned what it was like and what you had to do to be a major league baseball player. And, you know, so those are my first two and a half to three years of major league baseball. That was the taste that I got, even though I wasn't an overly successful pitcher, I was learning. And I think we all learn in life that we, we learn more when you fail than when you succeed. And I played on some Cub teams that on paper, we had some pretty good teams, but we didn't put the numbers up. We didn't win. And, you know, whether you want to believe it or not, I don't necessarily believe it, but you know, the big curse of, of the Cubs, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I lived through part of that era and what a great place to play was Chicago Wrigley field. Uh, you know, I was there when we, before there were lights, I was there, um, when they got lights um, and what a great place to play, great city to play in. And then from there, you know, I moved on to the Texas Rangers and had the opportunity to play with Nolan Ryan, uh, Charlie Huff, you know, two guys at the very ends of their careers. And, you know, I think their careers speak for themselves, but 
again, learning from true professional players. And I think those experiences that I gained, uh, whether I was successful or not successful, but the experiences I gained from being around people that were just true professionals and hardworking people have allowed me to turn myself into, quote, the person that you, Brett, maybe have met in 2001. And, and from there we go, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this question before we even cover it. Would a Jamie Moyer in 2021 get drafted today? The Jamie Moyer, <laughs> the second half Are of Jamie Moyer. Me? Are you kidding me? I, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even get a chance. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get a look. I, you know, I'd be the batting practice pitcher. I'd be uh, carrying the bucket of balls. Uh, you know, I wouldn't get that opportunity, but you know, neither here nor there, you know, I, you know, I, again, I'm not, I'm not against the game one bit. The game has changed. And, you know, I look at from when I broke into the game, you know, even the old timers that I would run into early in my career, they would look at us young players and say, oh, the game has changed. Well, now I'm now that old guy, right? And the game has changed. And, you know, you either change with it, you choose to change with it, or it passes you by. And athletically, competitively, it's passed me by. But respectfully, I do know that the game has changed. And whether I agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. Um and it's just how the game evolves over time. So, uh, no, I, I would not have a chance um, to get drafted today. But also, I don't know how I'd be reacting and responding to, you know, what they're asking of pitchers today. Maybe I would have had to have changed to have had that opportunity. But, to, you know, the stuff that I had, no, there's no way that I'd be drafted today. Well, I think for the people out there listening to the Boom Podcast, unless you've been in the box, in a big league box, you really can't quite understand Jamie Moyer and, and why he was successful. Being in a big league box, it's very, it's very clear to, to a player like me. And, and you and myself, we've had a lot of conversations about the strategy of baseball. I know you're a baseball purist. You love talking the game. But we always talked about subtracting instead of adding, throwing below the hitting the hitting right. uh, speed. Yep. Um, yep. I t- I've talked at length about, and I'll give you an example. As a hitter, we go into a hitter's meeting, and, and your typical big league meeting is, you know, his fastball is 92, 93, his breaking ball is 84, 85. We train as big league hitters for certain speeds. Eight to 10 miles an hour after fastball is usually the breaking ball. If you got a curveball, it's maybe 12 miles an hour. And I remember watching you, and, and some days you were throwing 83, but in a 2-0-3-1-3-0 situation, you might throw a pitch 79 and then 77 off that and then really slow it down to 70. And that's how you, in my opinion, were able to keep the ball off barrels consistently. Just talk a little bit about, you know, I, I kind of led you into it, but I want to hear it from you. A- am I accurate? There? Yeah. And, and, and that's, you're a hundred percent accurate. And that's what, you know, and that's what I would do. And then, you know, after throwing those off speed pitches, then I, you know, lean on my blazer and come back at you at 82 or 83. And it looked like it was 87, 88. And that's the, that's the whole, to me, that's the whole art of pitching. 
you add to subtract, you subtract to add, and you play that game. You, you're moving the ball in and out. You're moving the ball up and down. Now, I, I, you know, with my velocity, I learned real quick that I couldn't move the ball up. But when I, if I chose to move the ball up, I moved it up out of the hitting zone. And all I was trying to do was change an eye level. But my whole goal was to move the ball in and out and entice you and show you that I could, you know, as I matured in the game, try to show you that I could throw the ball in for strikes. I would move the ball off the plate in. And if I hit you, I hit you. I didn't really care because I had to, I had to have that mindset. You know, you have a choice if the ball's in and if it's at you, you can get out of the way. And if it's 83, it's not going to hurt you anyway. But my whole goal was to move the ball uh, east and west, you know, uh, side to side and change speeds. And if I could get ahead of you in the count, then try to create pitches that look like strikes out of my hand. But when they got to the plate, they were non-strikes. And if they were, if there was also a change of speeds for that, then I got you out on your front foot. And if I could get a hitter out on his front foot, I could take power out of the swing and, uh, you know, and, you know, I'll not allow guys to drive the ball. Now, obviously, if you, if I'm sure you've done your research, Brett, and you've probably looked at it and you looked at, hmm, I wonder who's given up the most home runs in Major League Baseball. Well, you're talking to them. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes, um, but as I, you know, and I'm not proud of it. But I, I do look back and say, you know what? When I made those mistakes and gave up home runs, uh, I always got the ball back. So, and that's what I tell young kids when I work with them. You know what? You're going to give up hits, you're going to give up runs, and you're going to give up home runs. And you have to learn to kind of let it roll off your back. And the umpire is going to give you another ball back. But the whole idea when you're giving up home runs is that, uh, and I learned this from Dennis Eckersley. You know, early in my career, I played with Dennis Eckersley. He was still a starting pitcher. Uh, with the Cubs and um, he didn't walk many people. He gave up a lot of solo home runs. And the way I look at uh, a home run, it's a rally killer. Uh, if you can, you know, again, you, you, you don't want to give up home runs, but when you give them up, now you got to dig in deeper and not like not let the next guy get on base and let that merry-go-round continue to go. You got to stop it. And I think you bring up a great point. And giving up the solo shot, don't give up a three-run homer. Don't give up a, a two-run homer. Give up a solo shot. You can live with that. You, your team can can rally back from that. And and it's a very similar mindset to a guy I played with before before we played together. I played with Tom Glavin, and that was his thing. He would not give in if it was a bases loaded situation, and he needed a strike. If the wrong hitter was up there and he didn't like the matchup, he'd rather get him to. Get him to offer it a pitch off the plate before he's going to give him a fat pitch to hit, and maybe it's a four four spot versus I just walked a run in. And and when you really think about it, and guys like you, guys like Glavin that that relied big time on control, you'll give up a one spot in that situation instead of the four. And I think it was it was great uh, trying to get that hitter to just get outside of his own. And a lot of hitters will. And obviously it depended on the hitter. You knew the hitters that you get to chase and didn't. But there was also a very unique thing about Jamie Moyer and tons when we were playing together, especially other teams, other players, Jamie loved to throw a pitch 
and then he'd, he'd walk to the dirt, which is kind of something not too many pitchers do. <laughs> get in our space, get in the catcher's, you know, in the catcher's right. dirt. Yep. Close to the hitter, and you'd have a conversation with the hitter. Now, as a hitter, that would drive me crazy. But as a teammate, I loved it because I know hitters don't like it. They're almost thrown off like, what's this guy doing talking to me during the bat? Talk a little bit about that. And, and what was the yeah, psychology look, behind it? You're, yeah, you're, you're trying to get an edge any way you can. Yep. And I know Without you know all about the word edge. When you walk on the field, you want to feel like you're the most prepared physically, the most prepared mentally. Maybe, you know, for me, I knew what my stuff was, you know, was it major league average? No, it was probably below average. So I knew that I was walking out there, not, I don't want to say qualified, you know, probably with my stuff, I wasn't qualified, but with my mental approach and, you know, I'd like to use the word tenacity. Um, I'm not going to give in. I'm going to fight. Yeah, you know, regardless of what stuff I had on a given day, I'm I'm out there to battle. And, you know, if my position players, my teammates knew that I was prepared and I was out there to battle, I knew my teammates were going to play for me. So it was all about preparation. And my and when I say preparation, it's the four days between starts. Uh, nobody's watching. Nobody cares what you're doing between starts. But when you go out there to compete on that fifth day, that's the day you need to be prepared. And look, you, know, you guys as teammates knew, I feel like you knew what you were going to get. And I think you've alluded to that. You knew what you were going to get when I was on the mound. And, you know, you knew the stuff I had. You know, you could pretty much play all the right-handed hitters to pull, all the left-handed hitters to pull. You didn't have to play guys, you know, they were off the off-field. Uh, unless they were good at hitting the ball, you know, the other way when they were behind in the count and things like that. But, you know, you played everybody to pull. You knew what I was going to, you know, I was going to eventually throw a hitter, especially a right-handed hitter. You knew I was going to throw a change up. And, you know, you knew what I was about. And if I could be consistent and I could stay in character, and to me that was huge, was to stay in character and be Jamie not try to be Steve Carlton or not try to be uh, Randy Johnson or any other uh, left-handed pitcher, Tom Glavin or whoever else. I had to be myself. And when I could do that, um, you know, you knew what to expect uh, as a teammate. Yeah, and we and we got to play together some pretty special years in Seattle, and, and that was a, it was a fun, fun bunch of guys and, and – you know, I remember the days where there's Moyer. He's not – and by the way, those of you listening to the Boom Podcast, Jamie was a pain in the ass when he wasn't pitching. He nonstop <laughs> coming up to me, hey, Booney, you want to use my bat? You want to use my bat? You want to use my bat? No, Jamie, I don't want to well, use your you bat. That, you're, that's you're insinuating slump, that I'm so struggling. I'm to help you out, you know. Get your mind <laughs> off of your slump and use my bat. It had a big, thick handle, so you weren't going to get jammed. It had a big barrel in case you wanted to bunt, which I knew you weren't going to bunt. But maybe, you know, my big barrel compared to you know, the barrel you had on your bet, maybe might get you some contact and get you back going in the right direction. <laughs> All right. So in 06, you head to the Phillies. Now, team you grew up loving, uh, your favorite team. You go there in 06. Mm-hmm. And in 08, you get, to the, you get to the World Series. You go 16 and 7 that year with a 3-7. 
and you're 45 years old. This is stuff I'm looking up now. I mean, the rest of us mm-hmm. have been retired for seven years, and and you're in the World Series and coming off a great year. Uh, tell me about that that magical 08 season. Well, you know, it, it, for me, it all started in 07. Uh, we had a really good team. We had a lot of young players. We had a lot of players that came through the Philadelphia Phillies organization and and there was passion about the game. There was passion about winning baseball. But in 07, we ran into a buzzsaw, what I would like to call it, a buzzsaw with the Colorado Rockies, and they cut through us like butter. And, you know, I don't know. After that series was over, we got beaten in Colorado. I don't know if I was ever in a clubhouse that was more somber and angry and upset than that clubhouse in 2007. Well, I had no idea what 2008 was going to look like, but when we got to spring training in 2008, it was an unbelievable spring training environment. It was very workmanlike. People were still upset. They still had that bad taste of how we got beat in the playoffs in 2007. And there was an expectation that, hey, we were going to get real deep into the playoffs in 2007, and and that didn't happen. We got knocked out in the first round. So, you know, again, and and this is what I loved about that team because, you know, they were still dwelling on that bad taste. And we went out and we had a really, really nice year and played together as a team. And uh, the Philadelphia Phillies front office did an unbelievable job of piecing that team together uh, with some veterans like uh, Jeff Jenkins, uh, a Matt Stairs, uh, Shane Victorino, who was a Rule 5 guy, had two big home runs for us, uh, one off of CC Sabathia and uh, when he was with Milwaukee, uh, when he got traded over there that season. And the other one was off, I can't think of the guy's name, big, Big, uh, big right-hander with the Dodgers, Broxton, Jonathan Broxton, uh, against the Dodgers. Uh, Matt Stairs had some big hits, but you know maybe one of the biggest hits was uh, you know after this rain delay when we get in the World Series in 2008, and uh, the game is delayed, pushed to the next day. We got guys on base, and Charlie Manuel, the genius he was, uh, didn't tell anybody the night before who was going to be pinch hitting potentially uh, when that game restarted and it happened to be Jeff Jenkins. And I'm I'm assuming he told him, uh, you know, right before the game started or as the game was starting and uh, Jeff Jenkins got a big hit and uh, you know, that just, you know, propelled us even deeper, uh, you know, into this world series. And we ended up winning worlds, beating the Rays in five games in Philadelphia. uh, I mean, horrible weather. Um, but golly, you know, that was a dream come true for me. Uh, you know, I mean, I think we all as kids, you know, you go back to your youthful years and you, you know, you always, whether you're playing wiffle ball or you're playing little league ball, you're thinking about, you know, making a pitch or getting the big hit in the world series. I was very fortunate to start game three of the, of the 2008 world series. I ended up getting a no decision, but came out of the game, you know, with a lead. We end up losing the lead. We won game three. We won game one, lost game two, won game three, won game four, and won game five. So, um, I mean, to me, that's what it's all about. 
and you know, for me, for me personally, doing it, um, you know, for I guess you could say my hometown team, um, that was pretty special, pretty special. And you know, and they hadn't won a World Series in was it twenty twenty eight years, um, you know, when they won it, and in eighty, um, I skipped uh, a day of school and went to the parade. And uh, 20 years later, um, I was sitting on one of those floats in the parade. So, you know, you just never know what life is going to give you or what opportunities you're going to have in life. But, you know, to me, that was the pinnacle of my career, that 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 2008 season, that 2018. And, you know, being fortunate enough to be on a team that won a World Series. And you talk about that 80 series. And obviously I, I experienced a parade in you Philadelphia. Bubble, you were blowing bubblegum bubbles back then, Brett. Right. But the difference is, is I was a little <laughs> kid, <laughs> you know, dad won, you know, that was dad's yeah. Phillies team in 1980. Yeah. And I was just a kid. You got to do it as a player, which is a little cooler, but man, I, I, I remember those such fond memories as a kid and, and to have a parade in a, in a city like Philadelphia, it's, it's kind of the pinnacle of sports. And, uh, you know, unless you've gone through it and, and you have now, you know, you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. that year too. And I, and I, and I found this out, which I thought was a really cool thing. And it was kind of a, a, a tribute to you. Uh, the guys, the guys dug up the rubber that year and, and they kind of presented it to you. Uh, speak to that, that story a little bit. Yeah, actually we were actually, it maybe didn't kind of pan out the way you just explained, but we were out on the, on the field, you know, doing our celebration, blah, 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 in the clubhouse, out on the field, in the clubhouse, out on the field, families were out on the field whatever. And uh, I don't remember exactly where I was standing on the field. And I looked over at the mound and I'm like, Wow, the rubber's there. That's a pretty special memento. I wonder if I could take that. And oh, I'm thinking, you ruined my story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry. Well, and so the grounds, a couple of the ground crew guys were there, and I said, "Hey, how can I get that rubber?" And they're like, "Well, I don't know. Let me go ask my boss." And he said, uh, "Well, I, I think Major League Baseball is going to take the rubber." And I said, "Well, how about we go get a pick and a shovel?" And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So they ran back into the you know, grounds crew room and uh, came out with a pick and a shovel and they started picking. I'm like, no, 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 I'm, let me do it. Well, I got about halfway through it. I was, I was struggling. We ended up, uh, it was a team effort and grounds crew guys and I, we, we pulled that thing out of the ground and I didn't, I never had taken a rubber before like that and didn't, you know, realize those rubbers are made with cement in the middle of them. And it was actually quite heavy. It was about 25, 35 pounds. I threw it up on my shoulder and started, you know, I was very proud of it walking around with it and quite excited and probably had it on my shoulder for a good half hour, hour. And I went inside to put it in my locker and I woke up the next day and my collarbone was so sore from that rubber laying on top of my rubbing on my shoulder, but it was well worth it. But uh, yeah, that's that's basically the story. So uh, yeah, I get to look at that uh, that rubber every day. I have it in my house, and it's got a little piece of uh, of mud still stuck on it. And the cool thing was, I actually grabbed some dirt off of that mound. I don't know if you if you recall Tim McGraw 
threw out a first pitch. And when he went out to throw out that first pitch, he had uh, a few of his daddy's ashes in his pocket and dropped them on the mound. So my claim is that, uh, you know, I got a few of Tug McGraw's ashes in my little baggie of, uh, of dirt from the mound. Very cool. And, and another first that year, because there's a lot of firsts you mentioned earlier, you gave up the most homers. <laughs> you become, and, and this will lead me to another, down another alley. You become the oldest player in Philly's history to get a hit that season in 08. And then that's not the last first. We'll, we'll get to that a little <laughs> later, but you got another hit, Moyer. I, I've seen you get a hit. Yeah. Now, now, Jamie Moyer, by the way, I, pl- I played with a lot of bad hitting pitchers. Moyer might be the ugliest looking hitter I've ever seen. He'll come out with an old, like, racquetball batting glove on the wrong hand, this this bat that nobody wants to use. His helmet doesn't fit right. But I've seen you get a couple knocks, and I know you loved it, it, those few opportunities you got to swing the bat. Uh, you love it. <laughs> but you become, you become yeah. the oldest player in history to get a hit. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate when I was with the Rockies in, uh, what was that, 2012. Uh, I didn't know anything that was going on, but I was back in the National League and uh, playing against the Diamondbacks. Um, get to the plate, and I don't recall the pitcher I was facing, and he throws a pitch, and, you know, I take my typical swing, you know, look to right, hit it to left, and I top the ball. Uh, into this little area, as we baseball players know, it's the, the Bermuda Triangle, which is between the mound and first base. And, you know, I'm chugging down first base. You know, I'm, uh, I'm actually 49 years old at this point. Just I'll share that with you. And I'm chugging down to first base thinking I'm flying down first base. This play happens to be in slow motion, by the way. Um, and the amount of time that it took, there was a good runners on second and third. Dexter Fowler, I do recall, was on second base. And uh, the pitcher came over, tried to swipe and pick it up and missed it. Paul Goldschmidt ran over, picked up the ball, came back towards the line, tried to swipe tag me. I barely got out of the way and uh, made it to first base. Unscathed, didn't fall down, uh, out of breath. And the amount of time that this took – Actually, um, I had two RBIs, Brett, on an infield did the, hit. Did you get the ball? So, you know, uh, I had – well, actually, I have the ball. I think of the ball, the bat. Uh, I think the bat maybe have gone to the Hall of Fame because um, I broke Julio Franco's oldest Major League Baseball player to have a hit and an RBI. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You just – you got My so claim many- to fame. I'll tell you, your bio, it just is so many firsts, so many most. And <laughs> it, it's pretty cool, though. It's pretty cool. Okay. So we're jumping to 2010. Uh, and you end up having Tommy John surgery. You missed the 11 mm-hmm. season. Correct. I just, why'd you come back? Well, I, you know, when I got hurt in 2010, uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't, actually tear my owner collateral completely. Um, and when I went to see Dr. Yoakum, God rest his soul, a uh, great gentleman uh, who was the angels uh, team doctor. Uh, he looked at me and said, well, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do right now. You have a grade two strain and a grade three is a tear, a complete tear. And I only had a grade two. 
And he looked at me and said, well, look, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do. I can, I can suggest that you try to rehab this and um, see what happens. So I did. I rehabbed it for the remainder of the season. I missed the, you know, the rest of the 09 season and missed the World Series. And, or excuse me, in 2010, missed the, the rest of the season. And, um, you know, didn't pitch. And I thought, well, geez, how am I going to get to spring training as an injured player? So I'm going to have to prove to myself and baseball that I'm healthy. So um, talked to Moises Alou, who was the general manager of Moises Alou Jr., this would have been, who was the general manager of Escojito in the Dominican Republic. And the deal was I go down and pitch three games, uh, one inning, two innings, and three innings uh, in three separate games. And uh, first game, first inning or first game I pitched felt great. Second game I pitched, I felt great. Third game I went out and pitched and I get to the second inning and I threw a pitch to home plate and right-handed hitter. I probably missed my catcher easily uh, outside of the left-handed hitter's batter's box. And boy, that was a painful pitch. So I didn't believe that, uh, you know, there was anything wrong. I asked for another ball through the next pitch, same result. And uh, at that point I realized I cannot throw a baseball or I cannot advance a baseball forward and be competitive. So I walked off the field, um, went in. And by the time I got into the clubhouse, I had a golf ball hanging off the inside of my elbow. So I knew there was some severe damage, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Uh, a couple of days later, went home. saw Dr. Yoakum again and uh, had a complete tear and he offered to fix it. And, but also the diagnosis was uh, a torn UCL, but also a torn flexor pronator, which is the, the bundle of muscles that attach at the bottom of your forearm uh, or that attach underneath your UCL. So he's like, look, you're never going to pitch again. I can, I can repair this, but uh, I have a friend in New York, Dr. David Alchek, who, uh, who, you know, has been, had the most success with, uh, uh, fixing the flexor pronator. So I said, that's where I'm going. So he turned me on to Dr. Alchek at the hospital for special surgery in New York. I had that repaired. I rehabbed, um, all of 11 missed that whole season and then got invited as a free agent to uh, spring training with the Colorado Rockies in 2012. And, you know, I did, uh, what I thought I could do. You know, I pitched, I don't know that I was effective. I wasn't really on the best of teams, but I wasn't an effective pitcher. And by the end of May, I got released from the Rockies. I won, I believe, two games. And then I pitched three games for the Norfolk Tides and actually pitched pretty well there. And uh, that didn't work out. And then I pitched for the uh, the Vegas 51s. I pitched three games there. I didn't pitch nearly as well there. And uh, at that point, I decided it was time for me to go home. Well, I remember. So I retired. Uh, I remember in 2012 in that spring when you signed with the Rockies and uh, Trevor Hoffman and myself, we were over in Arizona, but you know, one of the kids uh, travel ball tournaments. And I remember talking to Trev and he said, Hey, Moyer's pitching. We got to go check him out. I said, I can't believe he's still pitching. 
I mean, I, at this point, I got the yips. I can't even throw BP to 12-year-olds. But we went out to we, we went out and uh, watched you pitch, and and uh, I just said, I can't believe it. And then to see it, you know, you end up making the team, and and you go on, and and uh, once again, we come we come to another first. Moyer becomes the oldest pitcher to ever win a game. Pretty awesome, yeah. man. Yeah, that pretty was, awesome. Yeah, pretty special. Yeah. Did you get that you know, ball? Again, uh, I do. Uh, okay. You know, it, it's you know, as long as you, as you well know, as long as you have an opportunity to perform, uh, it's up to you to prepare to the best, the best of your ability, and and be a contributor on the team. And that's you know, I I was raised that way. Uh, my dad coached me from eight to eighteen years old, and um, you know, I was I was raised in the game that way as a as a young a young boy, and I really believed that as I went through my career. And, um, I hope I exuded that, uh, you know, to you as a teammate or any of my teammates, um, you know, it was all about, uh, you know, everybody needs to bring something to the table each and every day. And what you did yesterday means nothing because today's a new day. Yeah. It, it's man. It, it's just remarkable. The more I look at all the, <laughs> the places you've been and the things you've done, it's really, it, it's exceptional. I mean, it's you played in four different decades. Uh, you had a shutout every decade. We, we mentioned earlier the 269 wins. You're a Mariners Hall of Famer. Uh, you're a world champion. One of the best big game pitchers I've ever played with. Jamie Moyer, it's been a pleasure, and I appreciate you coming on the show. That's that's really good uh-huh. stuff. And what we do on the Boom Thanks Podcast, having- you got it. You got it. And here's what we do at the end of the Boone podcast. Uh, we got a okay. question from the fans and to give that question is the one and only Dan Levy. Hi, JV. How are you? I'm well, Dan. How are you? Did you get all <laughs> your medicines taken care of? You're all good to go. Everybody's nice and medicated. Just the way I like I it. I love it. Love uh, it. <laughs> well, you know, Chicago weather you've been here before. Oh, yeah. You know what it's, what it's all about. Yep. All right. This question is from Todd in Delaware, and he wants to know, Jamie, what was the Phillies World Series parade like, and what was the celebration like? Well, I'll tell you what, Todd, and anybody who cares to listen, uh, it was, uh, it was. I had no idea what to expect, and uh, you know that parade started out when we got on the floats and we first started going down the, one of the back streets. There was nobody out, nothing going on, and we got to Independence Hall. And all of a sudden, it was like Philadelphia was upside down. It was it was an unbelievably magical day. It was being in that parade was as exciting as winning the World Series for me. To see the wow. happiness and the joy of the people of Philadelphia, uh, you know, the fans. Obviously, we all know are very demanding, and I say that in a very respectful way. I get that. That's the way they should be. But to see literally people sitting on a curb crying with joy was a just a magical, magical day. And then, you know, just to experience going down Broad Street and just the utter excitement of my teammates, my family, the fans. Um, it's, it's really, it's what you play for. And, uh, you know, then we get to Citizens Bank Park and we went over to the Eagle Stadium and did a lap around there because there were so many people. I think they were talking about 2 million people um, that uh, converged on that downtown area. 
it was it was mayhem. It was controlled mayhem. It was happiness. It was joy. It was the culmination of 28 years of uh, not being in a in a World Series. Just a, a, a magical day. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound. It is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. You ready to rock? Uh, more ready than normal, Dan. <laughs> well, here <laughs> comes three right down the pike. Let's go for question number one. This one is from a fellow Dan in Houston, and he wants to know the answer to this question. Brett, which pitcher did you hate facing the most in your career? Ah. <sighs> A lot of them. I'm going to have to narrow it to one guy, Al Leiter. Al Leiter, really? Al Leiter, lefty cutter baller, kind of, kind of the pioneer of the cutter ball uh, from left hand. Nowadays, it's it's kind of a uh, not that big of a deal, but but he kind of was the you know the guy that that started it all. And man, especially the first half of my career, he would just keep chasing me inside, inside with that cutter ball. And then I'd get to a point where I'd get mad and I was going to show him and I'd rip a ball foul. Well, that's that's just strike one. So uh, <laughs> I, I got to go with Al Leiter. He gave me fits. All right. Let's go back in the old mailbag and go for this one. This one is from George in St. Louis. Brett, do you think that you would be able to kick an extra point? Without a doubt. <laughs> funny story funny story and, and we just had you know we're a lot of philadelphia phillies talk uh on the podcast today but uh i i grew up in, in you know just a, on the other side of the bridge from philly in, in new jersey and when you grow up in philadelphia you, you're it's a big sports town so it's the sixers and it's the eagles and it's the it's the flyers and the phillies of course but my idol as a kid was Tony Franklin, the barefoot kicker for the Eagles. And, you know, as a kid, you play you, you play a game of touch. Well, we'd be playing in the winter, snow on the ground. I'm playing with my buddies. And when somebody would score a touchdown, I made them stay for the extra point. So I had to take my shoe off. And kick. <laughs> I had a field goal post uh, that I kind of made out of two-by-fours and had in my backyard. And I would make these kids – line up for the extra point because I had to do my Tony Franklin impression. And could you imagine these 12-year-old kids like, oh, Brad, nobody nobody kicks the extra point. Nobody uh, does. I think I could, yes. That is hilarious. And finally, this one is from Mike in San Antonio. Brett, what was your I am now in the major leagues moment? Your first Okay, this is not the minor leagues. This is definitely the pros. What was that moment for you? Well, I, I got called up uh, 1992. Didn't sleep all night. Took a flight to Baltimore. And, man, I, I, I got whisked into the clubhouse. I was late. I was in the lineup. Uh, and I... I don't really remember because everything was just going so fast. I had a big press conference because it was this third generation thing. I get up my first at bat. I get a base hit. Um, but it wasn't until I think I, we turned a double play late in the game and, and it kind of settled in on me. And as much as I'd grown up in the game and, and been, 
been in big league clubhouses my whole life. I'd never been there as a player. I'd always been there as a little kid, you know, probably bugging the other players. But for the first time, and it's different. And and the guys, the guys that you know play in the big leagues, they can tell you there's a difference between the minor leagues and the big leagues. Just a, a bigger space. It's open. The decks are stacked a little higher. And I remember just kind of having a moment late in the game, and it was a big situation. I got a double play ball, and I turned it. And I thought, wow. I, I felt like a big leaguer right then. Well, a month and a half later, I'm sitting in my locker uh, with my head down, hitting 196. So <laughs> that was a humbling time for me. But that was probably the time I, I remember the most, that first double play ball. All right, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag. We want to thank everybody who went ahead and tweeted at us, at the Boone 29 You also found them on Facebook and Instagram. Those are other spots where we go and pick those questions and add them to the podcast. So if you got anything you want to ask or you want to get out to Brett, please go for it over in that direction. We also now have a new website. Brett, what's the website? BrettBoonePodcast.com. For the former Major League All-Star, Silver Slugger, as well as Golden Glover, Brett Boone, my name is Dan Levy. We'll do it all again soon. Take care, everybody.